Hello, and welcome to St. Paul's Growing Together, a Bible study podcast resource for the St. Paul's Lutheran Church and School in Bourbonnet, Illinois. Because we believe that studying God's Word is important, and that through our time together in God's Word, we grow in our faith in Jesus and our love for one another, we are offering you a chance to come grow with us through listening in on our Bible studies. We now join a Bible class on the Book of Acts, taught by our associate pastor, Mike Hanel. All right, we are going to begin. Welcome to, I can never remember if this is the normal time or this is fake time that we live in, but welcome to time and you're here at the right time because you uh, are here and not coming in an hour late, unless you came for church and that's why you're here. The 8.30 service, you missed that, sorry. Today, we are going to try to handle Paul's different uh, trials and adventures, uh, trials in a couple of different sense, I, I guess. Trials, court trials, the ju- judicial process, but also really the, the trials, the struggles that you can imagine that he had to endure. Um, I'll put this up in a, in a like handout form but uh, uh, just kind of to give us the big overview of what's going on in this section. It's all about the trials of Paul, and we started that by getting him in uh, Jerusalem, and then he was arrested in Jerusalem, which actually, as we talk about it, kind of was for the best, because had he not been arrested, taken into custody by the Jew, uh, by the Roman authorities, the, the Jewish mob no doubt would have ended his life right there. They were quite ready to, and as we will find, they continue in their tenacity against him. Um, We are going to cover over two years of time, and all within that time, their passion against Paul still persists enough that they not only want to continue their prosecution against him, but they are always looking for an opportunity to take matters into their own hands. Um, There has already been one plot against Paul. That is what brought him to Caesarea in the first place. The military tribune decided that the temperature was far too hot in Jerusalem to keep Paul there. So he snuck him off by night to Caesarea, and he now stands under the, the the governor uh, in in Rome, and they call it the the procurator uh, of of Judea, and he's on under his authority and and waiting for justice to happen. And the problem is that all throughout this period, justice <coughs> truly really never happens. Instead, Paul kind of gets strung along, and he's stuck in this process until he finally appeals to Caesar, and that's when things will get going again. But it's going to take two years for this all to happen. Um, so in the beginning, it started with the, he, Paul comes to Jerusalem, and he's in the temple. The Jewish mob, uh, the Jews from Asia are there because it's Pentecost, this great festival, and uh, they start gaining people against Paul and speaking out against him, saying that Paul uh, has been all over and he's, he's proclaiming things that are against the people, that is the Jews, against the law, that is the, the Jewish law, the law of Moses and their uh, traditions, and also against this place, meaning against the temple uh, itself. He was ultimately saved by Lysias, and then Lysias tries to 
bring formal process to the mob, but as he speaks to the mob, the mob is just, they're crazy. And so he is going to interrogate Paul. Before that happens, Paul has that opportunity to speak before the crowd, the angry crowd that wants to kill him. And as Paul kind of goes through his story, he gets to the, the, the point why he's all here and why you're all against me is because Jesus made me an apostle to the Gentiles. And it's this Gentile mission that is really at the heart of what has riled up all of these Jews, that they are still stuck on that division between all people, Jews and Gentiles. And it's okay if a Gentile wants to become a Jew. It's not that they would never accept Gentiles, but if a Gentile wants to become a Jew, they need to become a Jew. They need to do all of the the rites, circumcision. They need to follow all of the rules. and, And only then could they be brought in. Paul, however, proclaims a gospel that that all are saved by faith in Jesus and that all people are brought together, Jew and Gentile, not based on what they have done, but on what Jesus has done, on God's grace. And that is completely reprehensible to to them. So they continue to be against him. But but then Claudius Lysias gets more of a, uh, a formal trial. He can't interrogate Paul by flogging him because uh, Paul mentions this fact that he is a citizen. So citizen, Roman citizens can't be interrogated by flogging. And so uh, Claudius Lysias sets up the Jewish council, the Sanhedrin, and tries to gain from them what is going on. Why is it that you are against Paul? And uh, we don't really get a strong... Um, picture of what they think is wrong, but we get Paul's words. Paul says that I'm here because of the hope that I have and because of the resurrection of the dead. And the Jewish Sanhedrin being made up of Pharisees and Sadducees, people who are all Jews, but have their own differences and disagreements, primarily one of them, the thing that Paul focuses on or gets to is the fact that the Pharisees do believe that there is a resurrection, that there will be a, a resurrection, that this is part of God's plan. The Sanhedrin, on the other hand, don't believe that. And so when Paul talks about that and makes his plea that he's part of the Pharisees, they kind of... Uh, the Pharisees connect on that point, and he ends up dividing the Sanhedrin and chaos and violence is about to break out again. And so uh, Lysias steps in and says, okay, we're going to stop this. this. This is still not getting us anywhere. But in the end, I don't think Claudius Lysias knows what what this Paul is prosecuted for. What law did he break? He's still in the process of trying to figure that out. While he is uh, in custody, we learn about there will be plots for Paul's death. And that's when Lysias says, okay, this just has to stop. Get Paul out of here. Let's bring him to Caesarea. And so in chapter 24, as it begins, Paul is now in Caesarea. This is about 70 miles northwest of Jerusalem. The reason Caesarea is the place is because Caesarea is the capital, the Roman administrative capital. We think of Jerusalem as a big and important city, and it is for the Jews, but it's not for the Romans. Caesarea is the more important city for them. One of the big reasons is because it's right there on the coast. It's on the Mediterranean Sea, and the Roman connection to this province, uh, it's a lot 
easier for them to, to control things and make sure everything is going well when their administrative set center is located right on a port. It's right by the sea, and they can get messages back and forth. They can send officials back and forth. They can send army, uh, the military back and forth, versus if it was in Jerusalem, you'd, you'd have to go inland and travel quite a bit. Um, and Jerusalem really doesn't mean anything to the Romans. So what? It's the home of a temple. So what? It's where these uh, Jews say their God meets them. Well, the Romans don't believe in any of the Jewish uh, God uh, story. So it, it doesn't mean anything. Caesarea being that administrative capital, that's where, um, that's where he is now and where he will remain for two years, as I said. So this process happens relatively quickly that uh, Lysias isn't able to find answers, that Paul is under pressure, that things are just really not good in Jerusalem. But in Caesarea, things are a little bit more under orderly control. And Felix hopes that he can have a normal trial, a normal process, and figure out what goes on. Chapter 24 of Acts begins when Felix, remember, if, if we want to have this case happen, the Jews need to prosecute it. So they need to send their representatives to Caesarea and prosecute Paul. What is it that he has done? What is it that you have against them? And so in chapter 24, we learn that the high priest, Ananias, he came down with some elders and a spokesman, one Tertullus. Tertullus is going to be the, the lawyer, the prosecutor on behalf of the Jews. And they laid before the governor their case against Paul. And when he had been summoned, Tertullus began to accuse to him, that is to Felix, the governor, saying, since, though, uh, since through you we enjoy much peace, and since by your foresight, most excellent Felix, reforms are being made for this nation in every way and everywhere, we accept this with all gratitude. Which, as we say in the field, is a bunch of horse manure. Um, this is all just part of the process. If you're going to make a case and you know the judge, you want to ingratiate yourself to the judge. Felix is not a Jew. Felix really does not have a good reputation among the Jews. Uh, we learn about this not so much in the New Testament, but in the Jewish historian Josephus. And we're going to find out that Felix is going to be removed from office. He's not even going to be able to continue his tenure here. The Roman government removes Felix. Remember, he serves not because he was elected. He serves at the pleasure of the emperor. And when the emperor decides you're done, you're done. Well, the reason that he's removed, again, we learn from Josephus, is because he, he was too violent, uh, according to the Roman emperor, in dealing with the Jews, in putting down some of their uprisings and riots Remember, this Paul story is not an isolated case, that the Jews are just notorious for not living well under the Roman Empire, and there have, there's always been this friction, and there's always this delicate balance of you don't want things to get too out of hand so that the Roman authority like just you know completely takes away the little liberty that the Jews have, but at the same time, you sure want to let the Romans know that you don't like them and you don't want them there. 
So all of this is happening, and Felix is removed. Uh, nothing really to do with the case of Paul in particular, but Josephus says for the way that he handled himself among some of the Jews in Caesarea, and the, the emperor thought that he, he crossed the, the law, the, the boundary of what is like legal and authorized versus, you know, just after a while, these Roman administrators, they get fed up with the Jews because they just don't follow their norms for how one should behave. Like, what is the big deal? Just pour out a stupid sacrifice for the emperor. You know, we're not asking a lot, but the Jews were notorious saying, I cannot do that. That is worship for the emperor. We'll, we could pray for him. We will pray for him in our temple, in our way, but we will not worship him as all of the other people do. So this Felix, he's he doesn't have a connection to, to the Jews. He's not a, a Jew. He's not going to understand all of the intricacies. But the Jews, nevertheless, they have to do their part to appeal to him, to, to make it seem like they are uh, there for the good of the Roman Empire, and they are there to help Felix run a smooth administration. He continues, We have found this man, that is Paul, a plague one who stirs up riots among all the Jews throughout the world and is a ringleader of the sect of the Nazarenes. He even tried to profane the temple, but we seized him. By examining him yourself, you will be able to find out from him about everything of which we accuse him. So the three main charges against Paul is that he's a plague. He's a troublemaker. And with that, that you know, that's pretty generic. That. You, it doesn't break a law to be a pest, right? It's annoying, but that, that's not a law. So they say he starts riots. Um, and that's the reason why he's dangerous. Again, you remember Lysias? He took Paul into custody thinking that he was this Egyptian terrorist. The, the Romans are aware that there are people who cause riots. And right now, Felix doesn't know very much about Paul. So this is potentially a credible accusation but it still needs to be proven. You can't just make accusations at people and expect to say, expect the judge to say, oh yeah, you're right. He, he is a, a cause of riots and I, I must get rid of him. Well, show me, show me how he is a cause of riots. And the problem with Paul is not so much that he caused riots, but that Jews caused riots in response to Paul's ministry, in response to what they saw Paul doing in their communities. So if anybody was responsible for causing riots, it's the Jews themselves. It, it's never Paul who does that. He's connected to the sect of the Nazarenes, that is, talking about Jesus. And so this is another way that the Christians were, were known. Um, he doesn't use the terminology of the way right here, which has been used in a couple of other places, but that he is part of the sect of the Nazarenes, which is another interesting thing to refer to Christianity as a sect. That is, it's like another division. It's, it's a part of Judaism. That's really something to, to see that relationship there. Again, in Paul's eyes, Christianity is Judaism. It's 
continuity. It is the fulfillment of the promises that God has made in Jesus, but it is not a new religion. It's not doing a new thing. That's why Paul can still go back to the temple and he can worship his God there because it's the same God. So again, maybe connected to to the Sanhedrin. We already know that there are sects within Judaism. There is the Pharisees. There are the Sadducees. There's another group that we don't talk about too much in the New Testament because they're not really in New Testament world, but they are another, there's another sect that has isolated itself from everybody else because they thought even the Pharisees don't go strong enough in their interpretation of the law. This group is known as the Essenes. They're the, the, like the, the Dead Sea Scroll community, right? So there are divisions within Judaism. Uh, this just makes Christianity sound like another one, which um, again is, is kind of a, a cool thing to see, that they, they recognize a connection that there's a relationship. Again, there's disagreements in the theology and whatnot, but even to see that connection is a good thing. The other thing that's potentially dangerous with saying that is that Felix is not a Jew. He, 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 he I don't want to say he approves, he tolerates. He tolerates Judaism. And so if you are giving Christianity a part, a place among the Jews, then you're also granting that tolerance to Christianity itself. Because in the Roman system, um, they, had a, they had a law that said you can't just invent new religions and start new um, uh to, to the Romans, it would be like new cults. Cults, not necessarily in the negative exclusive sense, but um, groups that worship a new God. It, it's illegal to start new religions. Well, if the Jews could have pegged Christianity as a new religion, that would put them in violation of this law, and then they'd have something to prosecute Paul for. But again, the distinction between Christianity and Judaism, it was, they're so close. We today say, you know, there was a big difference. And there was in like the social part of it and how they thought of one another. But at the same time, theology wise, they were so close. Um, and, and so this kind of testifies to that. The third one is really the only one that um, is, is, well, I don't, I don't want to say it's true because it's not, but that Paul tried to profane the temple. The bit of truth here is that they don't even accuse him of doing something wrong, which he wasn't going to do anything wrong in the first place, but it's, they, they say he tried to do this. Well, if it's a crime to try to do something, you have to show that that there was an attempt made to do it. Otherwise, you can't accuse people of like thought crimes. Like we know his thoughts, we know what he was going to do. To, to accuse him of trying to profane a temple, it's an admission that he did not actually profane the temple, which is something that earlier they, they, they charged him with, right? 
well, that's already sort of fallen at wayside. They know that he didn't do it. So the next closest thing they have is that he tried to, to profane a temple, which it's not going to hold water. So even before Paul speaks, you can kind of look at the charges and say, they don't like Paul. That, that's pretty clear. But do they actually have a legal case against Paul? Even if all the things that they say were proven true. Not a very good one. Um, it's, it's not really, you know, you can stretch some of these things and maybe trying to purvey a temple, if they could prove that, maybe that could have broken a law, but these other things, no. So Paul gets up and he has his defense and his defense is a simple no, no, no. Um, here's the big thing. The way that Tertullus leaves his prosecution open is that uh, we, we make all of these accusations, and if you examine him, you'll find out that all of these things are true, which is a really terribly weak prosecution. A good prosecution would consist of what? Evidence, right? You make a charge, and then you show that the evidence proves the charge. Isn't that how lawyers usually work? Lawyer, is that how lawyers, you, if you have, see? It, if you have evidence, then you show that that strengthens your case. But Tertullus ends his speech, uh, Luke says, with you just talk to him yourself and you'll find out all of these things are true. And so as long as Paul just says, no, those things aren't true, you have what? A hung jury because you, you haven't proven anything. And if there's a presumption of innocence, then you have to prove the case in order for him to be guilty. You haven't proven anything. It's he said, she said, or they said, he said. So he says, no, no, I have, I'm not guilty of any of those things. Uh, you may not like me, but I, I didn't come to profane the temple. Um, I'm not a ringleader of, of any great, uh, you know, troublesome part of the empire. I'm not going to hurt people. I, I was only in Jerusalem for 12 days before I was seized. And so I... I'm a newcomer to Jerusalem. I'm an outsider. I didn't have time to put together uh, a, a rioting force. I didn't have time to organize anything. I'm, I'm an outsider here, and they're, they're making it sound like, you know, I control all of the strings of Jerusalem. It's clearly not true. Um, I didn't come to profane the temple. In fact, I brought alms. I brought offerings from people all across the Mediterranean and where do I bring all of those things? I bring them to the temple to, to make my offering. So, in fact, I'm doing the very things that everybody usually comes to the temple for. What is more, I actually followed these rites for purification. If I didn't care about the temple, I would just walk right in and do my thing, but I didn't do that. And although he doesn't say it here specifically, remember when he talked with James, he also agreed to pay for the sacrifices, the offerings that needed to be made for these four people that were under an oath. And so that would have been sacrifices of, of goats, uh, male and female, and uh, a bull, and, you know, a few other animals. And Paul pays for all of those. He's following all of the rules. How can you say he's profaning the temple when his own actions show that he, he agrees? He, he agrees with the sanctity of the temple and is following all of those things. So once more, 
something that was not mentioned at all by the prosecutor, uh, Paul brings up this point that the real reason I'm here uh, is because of the resurrection of the dead. That's verse 21. Other than this one thing that I cried out while standing among them, it is with respect to the resurrection of the dead that I'm on trial here before you today. And that's basically the case. So you can see where is Paul guilty? What laws has he broken? Where is evidence that shows all of these things that the Jews have against them? They're not there. Verse 22 of chapter 24. But uh, Felix, having a rather accurate knowledge of the way, okay, so in the speech so far, we referred to them as the sect of the Nazarenes, and Paul talks about the resurrection of the dead, which may perhaps also uh, mark him out as well. Um, in, in verse 14 of chapter 24, here's Paul's own confession. But this I confess to you, that according to the way, which they call a sect, I worship the God of our fathers, believing everything laid down by the law, etc. So Paul identifies himself as part of this. And Felix has knowledge of the way, which is kind of, again, surprising because Felix isn't involved in any of this religion stuff. Um, that, that's not his cup of tea. But he administers an area where these Christians, people of the way, are at least well enough known that he knows something about them. As people who are under his rule, he knows about them. He knows that they're around. And if he knew them to be a bother to the area that he rules, if he knew them to be bad, this would be the time to say, oh, you're one of those people. We don't want any of those people here. But Felix isn't going to, to say that. He's not going to do anything. He recognizes people of the way and he has no real grudge against them. Again, this shows that those early Christians, they're not trying to um, make God's kingdom come on earth by starting a new empire or anything like that. They live in God's kingdom. God's kingdom has already come in Jesus, and they proclaim the kingdom by proclaiming Jesus, his gospel to other people. But there's another thing about Felix, about his knowledge of the people of the way. Um, I'm going to skip a little bit and then I'll come back. Uh, verse 24, after some days, Felix came with his wife, Drusilla, who was Jewish, and he sent for Paul and heard him speak about faith in Christ Jesus. Drusilla is Felix's wife. Drusilla is the daughter of Agrippa. Um, is that right? I got I got to double. There are too many Agrippas. That, yep. Daughter of Agrippa the first. That is the one who in chapter 12 uh, executed James and wanted to execute Peter as well until God intervened. So we don't know the exact ages and how old she would have been at this time, but safe to say she knows something about people of the way. She knows something about Christians. Chances are it's not all good, uh, depending on her relationship with her father and, you know, what, what she took away from all of that. But she was also Jewish, and so Felix could probably ask his wife, Drusilla, you know, about these people. Yeah, what's, what is it with, what is it with you guys? What is it why, you know, why you do this and believe that? And by learning about Jews, 
there's also going to be knowledge of the people of the way. Christians, because like I said, there's a continuity there, that Christians follow Jesus as the fulfillment of the law and the prophets, things that were said in the Old Testament. So Felix's knowledge is not just from being an administrator. There is some close-hand personal knowledge. Um, a little bit of the, the dirty business is that uh, Drusilla is not... Uh, this is not her first marriage. The uh, Herodians are pretty infamous for having multiple wives, and it works both ways as well, uh, wives having multiple husbands. Um, and it's usually, you can see a motive behind it, they're attracted to power. And they want to be where the power is. And Felix, being a, a high administrator, Felix is originally born a, a servant. He lived as a servant, became a freedman, and through politics, through relationships, he advanced far enough in society that he was made a procreator. So he's done pretty good for himself, um, all things considering where he began in life. And so that, that too tells you a little bit about, about Felix and, and where he begins. And, you know, um, there's... I don't think this was in Josephus. I think it might have been in like Tacitus, where uh, Felix was criticized for, for even once he became an, a governor, of having a servile way about him. That is, you know, that now that he has that power, he, he guards it very closely, kind of like the, the Herodians did themselves. So maybe they had that in common and sought one another out. Okay, that was forward. Now I want to go back to 22. The case. What is it that Felix is going to, to do? He says, well, when Lysias, the tribune, comes down, he's in Jerusalem right now, remember, I will decide your case. In other words, he, he refuses to make a judgment for or against Paul. Instead, he sort of says, I don't know what to do. I don't want to release you, which he should. If there's no case against Paul, he's free to go. Um, but he's not going to say that he's guilty either because that's clear that there has been nothing that Paul has done that would break any of the laws. And again, as I said, Felix is accountable for his actions. If he's just finding people guilty of crimes who are innocent, that will come back on him. He needs to uphold justice as impartially as he can. So Lysias wants to become involved in this, but Lysias isn't really going to become part of the picture again. Uh, he gave orders then to the centurion that Paul should be kept in custody, but have some liberty, and that none of his friends should be pre prevented from attending to his needs. So while Paul is under arrest here in Caesarea, don't think of him as so much in a cold inner dungeon. He is under arrest, bad news, but he is recognized as kind of, you know, he's in this weird status where he's not guilty, he's not innocent, his friends should be allowed to see him. They should be able to come and bring him comfort, whether that's food or drink or, you know, clothes, that sort of thing. That's great news for Paul and means that he can sort of continue his ministry, right? He can hear reports about what's happening. He can write letters to people. In some of Paul's letters, I think I'll cover this at like the very end, the timeline of Paul's epistles and that 
that kind of thing. Some of Paul's letters are believed to have been written during this time uh, because there are numerous letters where Paul talks about being in chains and throughout his life he's been in chains and will be in chains a few different times and so trying to figure out is that this imprisonment or is it a future imprisonment we're not always clear but um, for two years he's here so he's going to continue his ministry he's going to do what he can and so writing epistles we shouldn't be surprised that that happened uh, with some of them during this time Um, Back to 24, Paul has an opportunity to continue his conversations with Felix, which is really interesting. Again, Felix, what's his attitude about Paul? Is he just curious? Like, you Jews, and now you, Paul, as a Christian, like, what is it about you? you? You are so very different than everybody else. Why are you so obstinate in your beliefs? Why is this so important for you that, you know, you, Paul, you're in prison because of all of this? If, you know, if you just say none of this stuff matters, it would have been really easy maybe for Felix to say, okay, you're free then. Uh, stop hanging around these people and, and you won't have any more trouble. It reminds us of some of the conversations that have happened in the Gospels, though. Um, John the Baptist and Herod. Remember, uh, John the Baptist was arrested by Herod, uh, and Herod, we're told, liked talking to to John. He was kind of entertained by him, even though, as we find out, some of the things that John was saying to Herod was that he was in violation of God's law because he took his brother's sister as his wife. He's committing adultery with her. That bothered his wife a lot, but Herod, he just kind of laughed at it and and thought it was funny. It also reminds us of another chapter of of Herod's life when he is also entertained about Jesus. When it's time for Jesus's trial, uh, Herod happens to be in town, and so Pilate asks Herod to get involved in the matter. Listen to to this Jesus, what do you think? And Herod, too, uh, we learn, wanted to hear from Jesus. He, He relished that opportunity to talk to him because he too was kind of curious. So there's this this curiosity around John and Jesus and now Paul by those in control, even if the things that are spoken to them are not really all gospel-y things. It's very often law. And here, Paul's conversations, he does talk to him about Jesus. That much is very clear in verse 24. But in 25, it says that Paul uh, reasoned about righteousness and self-control and coming judgment. Those are all real feel-good topics, aren't they? Today I'm going to talk to you about self-control. What does that imply? You don't have a lot of that, right? Today I'm going to talk to you about the coming judgment. I'm, a, I'm looking forward to the coming judgment, right? No, when we talk about coming judgment, usually it's because People need to change something. They need to repent so that they are ready, so that the coming judgment is not so much judgment, but it is their victory in Jesus. And what we know, again, about Felix is that he struggled with some of these issues, probably. He struggled with righteousness, doing the right thing. He gets in trouble, not with the the Jews so much. I mean, the Jews don't like him, but he gets in trouble with uh, Caesar Nero for his knowledge or his use of what is the right and the wrong use of force. Self-control by his multiple marriages and whatnot. But the coming judgment, Paul shows, I think, real love and concern for Felix. He's not just picking on these topics to annoy him. 
right? He's picking up these topics because this is, this is the law that he needs to hear. He needs to repent. He's never going to believe the gospel, the, the good news, what Jesus has done, if he has no reason to believe that he himself has done anything wrong, that he needs any of this. So Paul takes that opportunity, not just talks about ministry far off, but to minister to the very people, even if those people are in charge of his freedom and letting go, his release, he's not going to beat around the bushes. He's not just going to try to ingratiate himself to these people. He is going to be God's servant and speak God's word in law, but also in gospel to them. All of this, though, doesn't strike the right chord with Felix. It says he was alarmed and said, go away for the present. When I get an opportunity, I will summon you. Right. At the same time, he hoped that money would be given him by Paul. So maybe these meetings were not because he was really curious about learning about Jesus or the way, but this would be a prime time. Okay, Paul, it's just you and me. Nobody else here. Do you have something for me? Yes, I want to tell you about Jesus. Next day, Paul, do you have something for me? Yes, I want to talk to you about righteousness. Paul, do you have something for me? And, you know, he, this, this is a pretty common thing. Bribery among Roman officials. Again, they, they are supposed to operate according to law, but bribery was widespread across all of the empire. Um, and it's no surprise that it, it would happen here. Because again, Felix doesn't really have anything for Paul or against Paul. So he just, he just needs a little something to push him over the edge. He doesn't want to release Paul because he knows that that's really going to tick off the Jews. And he still has to rule over the Jews. So he doesn't want to do it unless there's something that could make it worthwhile to him. And that never comes. Two years had elapsed, and Felix was succeeded by Portius Festus. And desiring to do the Jews a favor, Felix left Paul in prison. Again, the reason that he's ultimately left in prison is because he wants a tit for tat with the Jews. I helped you out with Paul. You need to help me out next time there's a problem. But that didn't, it doesn't work well for him. He's removed from power. And uh, the years, there's a little bit of debate. Uh, there's two dates that are tossed, tossed around. One, it's either in AD 58 or AD 60. So that's, the, that's where we're at in the timeline, right? As Felix and Festus trade, um, they don't trade positions, as Festus succeeds Felix. 58 AD uh, 60. All right, so Felix... Not very helpful to Paul's cause. He just wasted two years of Paul's life in prison. Festus seems like a breath of fresh air. Festus comes to power. One of the first things that he's going to do is go to Jerusalem. Why go to Jerusalem? Because of the people that you are ruling, the, the Jews are the most troublesome part. You want to immediately, upon uh, attaining office, figure them out a little bit more. Let them know who you are, uh, see them, be seen by them, kind of establish relations with them. And as he comes to power, one of the things that's brought up in Jerusalem had to have been the case of Paul. Interesting thing here. Two years have passed since all of this has begun, and still the hostility against Paul. Has it abated? 
No, it's, it's still as real as if this just happened yesterday. As long as Paul is alive, these people continue to have their hatred for him and their desire for Paul's death. It's completely irrational, um, but that passion, you would normally think, okay, it, it sort of would uh, peter out. All of this time, it was begun by the Jews from Asia, but they've long gone. Right now, it's all the Sanhedrin and the high priests that are at work. And they took the charges that the Jews from Asia came, and they, they saw that they didn't really hold weight, but they still tried to press this case against Paul. And uh, here we are two years later. The, the Jews are, are not giving up. And they asked Festus even, you know, what about bringing Paul here? You know, you could, you could get a better feeling for uh, what's going on and uh, all of the the hostility against Paul, again, I think to pressure him to make a decision regardless of the evidence against Paul, but also because it's going to be a lot easier to take Paul's life if you bring him to Jerusalem. That was the plan way back with Lysias. Um, in reality, it probably would not have been so easy to take Paul's life. Um, you, you heard again that the Romans have a guard post there in Jerusalem, that they take their law and order seriously. They're not just going to let people come and assassinate other uh, people under their watch. That's not good government. That's not good leadership. But the Jews, nevertheless, they have these ideas. They have these plans. Um, but Festus, I think he's a wise enough person to realize that's maybe not the best idea. You know, when you first come to some place and they have all of these wonderful ideas, listen to them, but be careful so that you don't end up getting played by them. And Festus, I think, is aware of this. Like, okay, I'll take that under consideration, but why don't you guys come to my home and you can make your adjudication against Paul and we'll continue this process. And so that's what happens in the opening verses of chapter 25. And uh, verse six, after he stayed among them, not more than eight or 10 days, he went down to Caesarea and the next day he took his seat on the tribunal, that is the court, and he ordered Paul to be brought. When he had arrived, the Jews who had come down from Jerusalem stood around him and bringing many and serious charges against him that they could not prove. So Luke, by this time, he's not even giving us the charges against Paul, um, but he points out what we have already figured out, things that they can't prove. They're just accusations that really hold no weight. And so why even spend more time going over this? We've done it again and again and again. What is more important for Luke is this is, this is what Paul says about his whole um, ordeal so far. Paul argues in his defense, neither against the law of the Jews, nor against the temple, nor against Caesar. Um, I think I forgot the temple there I did. Uh, so Paul goes back to some of these uh, initial charges but he also adds, not against Caesar, to kind of point out, this guy doesn't care whether I did things against your laws, against our traditions. That, that makes me an enemy of you, but that's not illegal in the Roman Empire. So Paul kind of ups the ante and he's, he's saying, I didn't even do anything against Caesar. I haven't done anything against the Roman Empire, so therefore this case, it, it really shouldn't continue. I should be found innocent. Um, and again, his, his word is, is all we need because they don't have any evidence and 
Paul can give his own life as evidence, and as long as none of them can speak out against his own autobiographical details, which nobody has so far, um, he, he lived his life in the public, they know they don't have a case against him. Verse 9, but Festus, wishing to do the Jews a favor. So in this respect, we just have an echo of how we ended chapter 24. Festus is in a really tough position. He's just come to power and he doesn't want his first decision to be one that gets the Jews angry, especially when he's been to Jerusalem now and he knows how important this case against Paul is. He knows how passionate they are. He knows what's on their mind. He he doesn't want to make this his first decision. And so he tries to appease the Jews. He tries to find another way around this. And he says to Paul, so Paul, would you like to go to Jerusalem so we could uh, try the case there? And Paul sees the writing on the wall. If this case goes back to Jerusalem, he's never going to leave. He will not leave alive. The the Jews will not make that possible. So here's where um, he says the, the famous words, I'm standing before Caesar's tribunal where I ought to be tried. To the Jews I have done no wrong, as you yourselves know very well. If then I am a wrongdoer and have committed anything for which I deserve to die, I do not seek to escape death. But if there is nothing to their charges against me, no one can give me up to them. He's basically saying, you shouldn't be able to even offer that I should be tried before them because that's an admittance that you don't have a case against me. If that's true, let me go. Paul can see Festus isn't going to let him go. He doesn't want that to happen. And so for Paul, the only way out of this is to go up to appeal his case to Caesar. And he knows that he can get no worse a hearing from Caesar than he would with any other alternative. Um, And so he's not afraid to do that. He's not afraid to do that even if death comes. That's not uh, what bothers him. But in the back of his mind is Jesus's own words to him. You must go to Rome. And this is how that's going to be possible. So since Festus hears this appeal, since this is a right of Roman citizens, they have that right to appeal to Caesar. There's really nothing he can do at this point in time. Technically, you could say, wow, this, this is going to go to, to Caesar. That's really going to bother him. And Paul's going to be kind of a, a troublemaker. Like Caesar will hear the case and be like, why did you, why did you send this guy to me? There, there's, there's no case against him. This should have been an easy decision to make. So you'd think, well, Festus probably should have just acquitted him and got it all over. Uh, but there's another way of thinking is that once Paul says that he appeals to Caesar for Festus to try to stop that appeal, um, no matter how it's going to be a reflection on him, to stop it would kind of say that you don't want Caesar hearing this case at all. You're getting into Caesar's business and saying what's right or wrong for him. So while we look at it and say, Festus should have just like with this said, okay, um, case closed, go home, everybody, Paul, you're free to go. But he doesn't. He says, okay, You've appealed. We're done here. There's really nothing more we can do. Um, But it's not going to happen immediately. Once you appeal to Caesar, it's it's a bureaucracy, right? Red tape. You have to fill out the right forms, send the right letters, uh, arrange for transport. How's Paul going to get to Rome? All of that stuff, it has to be lined up. So there's still going to be some time. 
And that allows for one other pseudo trial. It's not really a trial because, like I said, by this point in time, this is, this is the decision. This is what is going to happen. Paul has appealed to Caesar. That's the next step in the process. But that doesn't stop Festus from having a conversation with Agrippa, now the second. Agrippa the second. This is the son of Agrippa the first. And uh, this, this Agrippa, like all of the other ones before him, he has the same curiosity about Paul and wants to hear from him. And Festus has no problem letting uh, Agrippa in on this because Agrippa's still kind of left with this challenge of, wait a second, so I have to send Paul to Caesar. I need to put together... Uh, um, Oh, help me out, lawyer. What, what would you call it? The, like a case summary, kind of? A brief. There's a good legal word. A brief about him, why, why I'm sending him, what he's been charged of, the history of the charges and the case and so forth. And as I'm filling this out, I still don't know what, like, why is Paul here? Why is he being prosecuted? What, what law is he in violation of? So let me... Let me talk to Agrippa. He's more familiar with Jews. He's uh, one of their own political leaders. Um, maybe he can help me out. And uh, so he, he invites Paul to speak before Agrippa. The speech that Paul gives kind of feels like he's on trial. He, he's giving a defense of himself. But again, technically, it's not really a trial. Um, there's, there's not really going to be any decision that, that happens other than has already been made. In fact, as Festus and Agrippa talk, they both kind of come to the conclusion, well, I don't even know why he, he appealed. I don't even know why he's going to Caesar. This, this case should be over with, which is something you can say when you know that somebody else is dealing with the case from now on. So now that there are no ramifications for your opinions, Festus, Agrippa, they can say, well, pff, this guy's innocent. He, he hasn't done anything. But before this, if they would have said that, that would have amounted to an official opinion, which Paul would be released. The Jews now start to get angry. Agrippa II is an interesting guy because although he's a Jew, uh, he will be a turncoat later on in history. Uh, when the Romans come to war against the Jews just six years from now, or eight, depending on your dating. Uh, in 66 AD, Agrippa II will side with the Romans, and he will take up arms to fight against his Jewish brothers and sisters, which again shows you that the Herods, they're Jewish, sort of, but not really for the religious reasons. It all has to do with their political dynasty. Um, and the heritage to power that they have. Um, they don't really care much about all of this stuff, which is also seen in a little interchange that Paul has with Agrippa. Um, when Paul is reciting all of the, his defense and about himself, and uh, this is in uh, chapter 25, um, nope, I'm sorry, it's in chapter 26. Uh, 
There it is, chapter 26, verse 24. Paul has just recited his whole kind of autobiography again, which is a little bit different than some of the other um, presentations of it. But there in 26 is his autobiography. And uh, in 26-24, Festus, as he was saying these things in his defense, Festus said with a loud voice, Paul, you're out of your mind. Your great learning is driving you out of your mind. So again, there's this recognition that Paul is a very smart, intelligent, erudite person. He's, he's not just one of these uh, up-from-the-grassroots kind of anarchist terrorists. He, he, he is a cultured man. He, he is basically on class with the kind of people that uh, he's arguing his case before. But Paul then says, I'm not out of my mind, most excellent Festus, but I'm speaking true and rational words. For the king, that is Agrippa II, knows about these things. When he's speaking about his own Jewish faith and religion and upbringing, and even about Jesus and the resurrection, he's saying, Okay, Festus, you don't, you don't follow any of this stuff, but Agrippa II, he's a Jew. He knows exactly what I'm talking about. He may not agree with me, but he knows exactly what I'm talking about. It's not superstition. It's not foolishness. This is what our people believe. So, for the king knows about these things, and to him I speak boldly, for I am persuaded that none of these things has escaped his notice, for this has not been done in a corner. Verse 27, King Agrippa, do you believe the prophets? Pause. He doesn't want to even let him answer. I know that you believe. He's putting on trial, so to speak, King Agrippa's own Jewishness. Is he just a Jew by his birth, or does he believe the things that are in God's word? Do you believe what the prophets said? Do you believe what Moses said? And Paul puts him in that hot seat, and Agrippa's in an uncomfortable position, because I think in his heart of hearts, he probably doesn't. He probably does not believe any of these things. He knows about them because it's all around him, but he's a king. He's a political player. That's the reason why this is all so important to him. That's why he's curious about Paul. So Paul doesn't give him a chance to answer. And Agrippa can't say no because he's supposed to be in charge of the Jews. And if they hear him say, no, I don't believe any of these things, uh, this is all just hogwash to me, you're immediately going to probably be uh, having some very angry Jews come against you and try to get rid of you because they'll say, you're just like the Romans, you're one of them. But Agrippa is an incredibly shrewd man, and he doesn't even get into this. He says to Paul in verse 28, in a short time, would you persuade me to be a Christian? He's like, okay, Paul, I see what you're doing. You're just trying to convert me like you've converted all of the others. And if that's a smart thing to say, Paul's response is even smarter. He says, short time, long time, I don't care. What I do care about is that one day you would be like me, except not in chains like this. Um, That is that you would have faith in Jesus, that you would know this gospel. Once again, he shows his love, his concern for everybody. These people are against him. These people are part of the political machinations that could have freed him, but they didn't care about him. They cared about politics. They cared about their power. And Paul doesn't revile them. He, He 
brings the good news to them as he tells his own story and even just one-on-one. Do you believe this? Do you you believe, you know, this this is what our faith has been all about. And Jesus has come. One final footnote. Uh, In all of this, as Paul is finally able to talk about the resurrection and Jesus there before Agrippa, it's things not said that are as important as what is said. And in all of this, in all of the trials, the biggest way to end this is to show that Jesus is not the Messiah right? That this Jesus is just a false teacher, a false prophet, all of these things. And nobody does it. Nobody even attempts it. Nobody can do it because the evidence isn't there. As, as Paul would write in 1 Corinthians 15, we know that Jesus really rose from the dead. We know that he's the Messiah. We know that this is the truth because we saw him. We saw him resurrected from the dead. And that is the ultimate uh, foundation for what Paul is doing. It's the ultimate foundation for the gospel. It's the ultimate foundation for all, all these people of the way or the sect of the Nazarenes, for what they believe. It is Jesus's own resurrection. And so you can start to see that when Paul is talking about the resurrection and starts throwing that in there, it wasn't just as a point to cause people to stumble and to divide people. It was the absolute truth. If there was no resurrection of the dead, I wouldn't be here because I would still be killing these Christians because they are blasphemers, because they are against the one true God. But because of the resurrection, because Jesus is alive, it has given validation to everything he said and everything he did. It is most certainly true. And to that, Paul's willing to give his life. And hopefully we are too. All right, we'll mark that as the end. Did I, I, I did not do word for word, but 24, 25, 26... We, we did that? It, yeah. Uh, if you have any questions, because I, did, I didn't do word for word, uh, as you look over it this week, just let me know. Otherwise, we'll continue with a sailing trip next week. Thank you for listening to this Bible study. If you have questions or comments about something you've heard, let us know by leaving us a comment on our webpage, stpaulslutheran.net, and look for the menu About Us. Our Bible class meets Sunday mornings at 9.50 a.m. at 1780 Career Center Road, Bourbonnet, Illinois, 60914. We'd love to see you there. Come and grow together in Christ with us.